for those of you that, that weren't able to join us out at family camp, uh, you were missed. We, we had a, an awesome time uh, hanging out with one another and enjoying good camp food, swimming in the frigid river. Uh, it, no matter what kids say, yes, it is cold when you get in. Uh, Diane can uh, attest <laughs> to that. Um, receiving from the Word of God. It, it was really just a great time. Our teaching time out at camp was titled, How to Read the Bible Well. And it, it just focused on that one tool in our toolbox of how, how do we improve the interaction that we have with God's word and how we get the most out of the time that we're, we're dedicating to that. And so it was a, just an awesome time to, to receive from the Lord out there. Um, this morning, we're going to be picking up on the study that we started in Daniel, uh, starting this time in uh, Daniel chapter 11. I have a question for you. Have you ever wanted to know the plan? Always. <laughs> if you have a kid, they want to know the plan. <laughs> uh, as soon as, you know, my kids are, are awake, up and running, they, they are actively looking for a well-delineated plan, not just for like the next hour. They, they would really appreciate the whole month laid out in bullet point form with specific times of when they're going to be expected to do these things. And, you know, we kind of chuckle, but then at the same time, we're trying to build out our own plan. We're trying to put our own times on everything. <laughs> we're going through all of those things in our own mind just at a little bit higher level, right? And in these 45 verses that we're going to see, there's a lot of information that is being shared to Daniel all at once. And it's all a plan. And it's all a plan that has yet come to pass as far as Daniel is concerned. This is all stuff that's going to happen in the future. And it's funny because as I was reading this, so often when we read, you know, apocalyptic literature, so often we read the book of Daniel and we read the book of Revelation, we're, we're so caught up in the things that are happening. It's like, wow, I wonder who that person is that, that they're talking about. I wonder what that kingdom is, what this time is, when's this going to happen? And very rarely do we stop and think about the person that all of this stuff is being shown to, all of the, the stuff that this is being told to or that this person is seeing. And it's funny because as I was starting this process and kind of going through this, I wasn't really thinking about the kings of the north and the south that we're going to hear about. Um, I was actually just thinking about Daniel and as God is downloading all of this information to him, this trove of prophecy that's coming down, I, I started thinking about Daniel and how receiving this information, what did it change in his life from the day that he saw it, the time that he saw it, to the next day? What did his tomorrow look like after he saw what he saw? Did it change how he was going to go about living his life the next day? And, I mean, I don't know the answer to that, obviously, as I'm not Daniel. <laughs> but it's something that's interesting to think about. And I could say it probably didn't from what I know about Daniel. Not, not substantially. The details that are shared in this vision, they, they don't come about for like 
hundreds of years. Like, it takes a long time for some of this stuff to take place, and some of it hasn't taken place yet. And, but what we start seeing is, so, so let's back up a second. So why share it with Daniel? Why, why did he need to, to see it? He needed to see it because he needed to write it down. I, you know, this isn't biblical. This is Matt's imagination. It's like God saying, hey, watch this. <laughs> and he, he, he puts it down in writing so that it, it's, it's a firm point. And it, it's written down firmly right here. Hey, watch what I'm going to do. And I'm not just going to tell you one thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you 130 things that I'm going to do in these next 45 verses. And I'm going to do all of them. And so what does it do for Daniel? It doesn't change who Daniel is. It doesn't, you know, massively transform his life. He's like, wow, I was going to do this. Now I got to go do this. Now, none of that, I don't think, really happened. But what it did is it showed Daniel there is a God in heaven who in the midst of all of this chaos that is happening in the world around you, amidst all of the worldly kingdoms that you see, amidst all of that, he's in control. So I think that the best way that we can spend our time in these 45 verses is to go step by step through all 130 of these uh, prophecies that are going to come about, and we'll have a test at the end and see how many of them you remember. <laughs> Everybody on, on board with that, right? Okay. It, Heidi like runs out the room. <laughs> I was just teasing Heidi. You can come back. Uh, <laughs> no. So if that's not the best way for us to spend our time this morning, we can step back and we can ask God what it is that he's trying to teach us through all of these details. What, what are we to, to learn through all of this? And the fact of the matter is some of you are going to want to geek out on this. Some of you are going to look at this and say, man, who is this person? When did this happen? What are the specific dates of this thing? And can I tell you what? You can. It's all there. This is true. Do you have that person in your life who goes on a road trip, like cross-country road trip, and they start talking to you about the road that they're on in New Hampshire, like you know what road they're on and what off-ramp they took. And, and they start talking to you about yeah, so I, I went, you know, about 20 miles south on, on you know, I-72, and then I took that little off-ramp that's over there, and then and they're talking to you like you've been there, like you know it, and you're like, I don't care. Like, just get to the point of what it is that you're trying to say, because none of that is relevant to me right now. Does anybody else have somebody in your life that does that? Okay. <laughs> get to the point is kind of the, the moral of that story, right? <laughs> Are you guys one of those people? <laughs> Susie says, I'm seeing myself in this conversation and I don't appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I want to do this morning is I want to get to the point of what it is that, that it's being talked about. The, the detailed nature of this vision gives us hope in who's, control, who's in control. The details matter. And they, they matter because they're detailed and they're accurate. 
And because they're accurate, if there is a God who can predict all 130 points that we're going to talk about, that can talk about the rise and fall of nations with accuracy to the date, do you think that just maybe he can control the things that are going on in your life? that he has, has input into your life, that he is, has his hand of protection over you, that you are not alone in the things that you're going through. Yes. If God can be that precise and detailed, then why would I ever think that he's unable to handle my future? God is moving and working through all of history. If we look at the, the first four verses in chapter 11, I'm going to read them right here. It says, And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all of the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. And after he has risen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Well, that all seemed like pretty specific. Like, have you ever had a fortune cookie and it's like, you will have great fortune <laughs> and then some misery? <laughs> it's like, well... That was like pretty safe. This, this is not safe. This is pretty darn specific. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you've probably heard about some of these countries that are, are being talked about. You can probably pick them out and say, okay, I, I get what's happening here. We, we know that, that Babylon, you know, became, you know, kind of got conquered by the, the Medes and the Persians. And eventually the, the Persians were the greater of the, the two and the Persian empire kind of came about. And eventually, God does something. Remember what he did with uh, King Cyrus. He's the, the king of the, the Persian Empire. He uses that king to send the people of Israel back home. To send God's people back home. That was, that was what God used the Persian Empire for. The Persian Empire ensured that God's people would return to Jerusalem. Why do God's people need to be back in Jerusalem at a specific time? Because Jesus is coming. There is all of this other prophecy that we see in Messianic Psalms, that we see in in all of these other areas of Scripture that are saying, hey, there's a Messiah that's going to come, and he's going to come during this period of time. He's going to come in this specific place. He's going to do all of these specific things. For that to work, they kind of need to be in those specific places. And God's not like, oh my goodness, I forgot. No. God uses the rise and fall of nations to accomplish his purposes. And so while the king of Persia may think that he just had this great idea, God's like, yeah, just get on board. And so the king of Persia sends the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. Like, geopolitically, there is no 
real reason that I can think of. Well, there's maybe a few, but not really any very good reasons to send a nation back to their hometown to say, hey, just build that up. Oh yeah, you need to build walls so you can keep us out of it. Go ahead and do that too. You want to go back to worshiping your God instead of ours? Okay. You want to undo all of this assimilation that we just spent, you know, a hundred years bringing about and you're like, totally fine. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But God has a plan. So the Persian Empire, an empire that doesn't follow God, is being used by God for God's purposes because God is in control. So do you remember which king we were talking about when we were talking about Greece a few weeks back? We have Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquers most of the known world by the time he's like 30. And he dies at 32. He dies at 32, and the region is split off into four different regions that go to his uh, different generals. What's the, the greatest contribution that the Greeks bring to the, the spread of the word of God? Their language. If we look at the, the New Testament, how many uh, books in the New Testament are written in Greek? All of them. Pretty much all of them. God raises up an empire in 10 years, and then the king dies, and in that time, the Greek language becomes universally known in Europe and Asia. That's not to say there's other languages out there. Absolutely, there are other languages, but Greek is known. The writers of the New Testament may not have, they probably didn't even think about what they were writing, what language they were writing, and they were probably just writing in what they knew. But that language was put in place by God through the rise and fall of nations so that the word of God could go out to all the nations of the earth. And when it went to all of the nations of the earth, it wasn't a, hey, hold on, I gotta like translate this into this other language so you can read it. It went out and everybody understood it. The next sections of scripture that we're gonna read refer to these, to two specific nations. We have the kingdom of the south, which is Egypt, and we have the kingdom of the north, which is Syria. So verses 5 through 20. Buckle up. This is going to be a good one. When we, one second, before we get to this, this is going to feel like a soap opera. (laughs) So when you start reading this, you're going to be like, wait, this is still the Bible, yeah? Okay, so this is, the details are going to be hard to follow. But if you, you stop and, and you want to take time and, and follow this, you can follow and, and fact check every name, every person, every nation, every transition of power exactly as it's predicted in this book. And one of the questions that sometimes comes up as we start looking at this is why is this relevant? Like why do we need to know this much detail? It's not a a new message or a new surprise. It's the same story that we're hearing over and over and over again as we read through the book of Daniel. It's that 
God is on his throne even when we aren't. So in verse 5, it says, The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One of her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. Good. We, we followed that, right? Everybody's, everybody's there. The, the nations that, that we hear about here, so we have Egypt, the, the nation of the south, and, and what we learn by looking at all of those transfers, looking at all of those changes, all of the, the stuff that goes on with that, is that earthly kingdoms are prideful and temporary, <laughs> Remember, I, I told you, we're not, we're not going to dive into the, the exact process here, but this is the what do we learn. We learn when we look at this that earthly kingdoms are prideful and temporary. The nations that we hear about in the, the book of Daniel, if we think about the nation of Syria, the nation of Egypt, if we think about Babylon and Persia, if we think about all of those different nations today, they're really just footnotes in history. I mean, some of their, their culture still exists, and I, I don't want to be disrespectful of that, but in terms of the level of power that they held then to the level of power that they hold today, it's just minuscule. So do I put my, my trust and my faith in government in earthly kingdoms that are prideful and temporary. Maybe that's a surprise to you that earthly kingdoms are, are prideful and temporary, but they are. Or do I put my hope and my trust and my faith in the God of heaven? In this next section that we, we look at, we need to listen very specifically for a, a part that talks about God's people getting involved because this is important for us to catch. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. And in those times, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success." 
Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases and no one will be able to stand against him. And he will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. The beautiful land is Jerusalem. That's an important thing to remember. He will determine to come and with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. And then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and he will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. And in a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Again, this is very specific. (laughs) So what we have here, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, we have Egypt down here, we have Syria up here, and right in the middle we have Israel. And I don't know if you caught it, it's in that verse 14. It says, those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. And so what we see here is there is this select group in the, the nation that was saying, hey, these guys are fighting. Maybe we should try and take advantage of this and maybe we can get something good for ourselves out of this. Not, does God need our help in, in, in seeing these things come about? I was like, I've got this, okay? <laughs> but the, this little group decided that they wanted to get involved, in, and what happens? It says, but without success. <laughs> it, it didn't work out so well. What, was God sharing this dream, this vision? Because, like, oh, by the way, I'm going to need you guys to pitch in on this one little transfer that's going to happen up here because I don't think I've got that one covered. All of the rest of them, I'm doing okay, but this one, I need your help. No, God's people wanted to be, get involved because it was a benefit to them. Have you ever known a time in history where God's people have gotten distracted from what God's called them to do? (laughs) Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it, it happens in these four walls, unfortunately. It's just kind of one of the things that, that comes about, and it happens, we redirect, and we keep going. But it's a fact of life. Through Syria, through the kingdom of the north, we see the tendency for God's people to get distracted by unnecessary conflict. If I am allowing today's political or social conflicts to get in the way of me making disciples of all nations, then I've missed the point. It's, I mean, that's about as simple as we can get it. If I'm allowing the other things that are happening in the world to get in the way of me doing the one thing that God called us to do, then, then how do I justify that? This section of prophecy covers 150 years of history accurately. So accurately that some scholars claim that it is impossible for anyone to write this many events in advance. 
unless they were the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful creator of the universe. Then there is that. The same God who is sharing the details of the nations with Daniel is the same God who wants to be in relationship with you. But Matt, my, my life's a mess. There's too much going on. I mean, have you been reading the last, like, 10 chapters? There was a lot going on there. That didn't catch God off guard. And so now we, we come to this next section in, in verses 20 to 45. Israel in the middle, Egypt down below, Syria up north, and we have this guy named Antiochus. Antiochus is a bad dude. A bad dude who persecutes the people of God. A type of antichrist who points forward to another antichrist yet to come. Actually, starting with verse 21, sorry. Um, he will be succeeded, he being this tax collector that got sent, be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty, Antiochus. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure. He will seize it through intrigue, and then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed." After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. The way Antiochus comes to power is he actually steals the throne from his nephew. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his father nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and, and a courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other but to no avail because an end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action against it and then return to his own country. All right, let's, let's jump into that for a minute. <laughs> so Antiochus and Syria, they, they come to power through deceit. His thirst for power seems unquenchable, and you see that time and time and time again in world leaders. And there was one prize specifically that Antiochus was after. It was God's holy people. Is it possible that Satan and his forces would want to take out the people of God around this specific time? Why would they, why would they care about the, the forces the, the people of Israel during this specific time because Jesus is coming. And so this, this approach of trying to destroy everything is an attack of the enemy to try and thwart the plans of God. Verse 29, it says, at the appointed time he will invade the south again 
but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. 30 ships of the western coastlands will oppose him. Those 30 ships are Rome. Will oppose him and he will lose heart. He will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. The Roman Empire changed the world yet again. So we talked about how we have the Persian Empire that, that sends God's people back home for, for the specific appointed time. We have the Greek Empire that gives language to be shared amongst the known world. And then we have the Roman Empire that comes that gives a method of travel so that the word of God can now spread because it's traveling by boat. It can travel by Roman roads. We, we hear about Roman roads being famous. Some of them are still standing today. If you go to Italy in those areas, many of the roads that they actually drive on are from the original Roman roads that were built. And what we see here is a Roman general coming up to Antiochus, and this is supposedly a true story that is, historians have, have, have documented, that he comes up to Antiochus and he says, you aren't to attack any longer. You're to go home. You're not to be attacking Egypt anymore. Antiochus isn't really used to people telling him what to do. He says, what are you going to do about it? And the general draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus and says, you will not leave that circle until I tell you to. And he doesn't because he's afraid. <laughs> He's afraid of the Roman Empire. And so he does. He, he packs up his army and he returns back home. But on his way home, what do bullies do when they can't pick on who they want to pick on? They pick on the next best. <laughs> and so we have the, the people of Israel that are, that are in Jerusalem on on. Antiochus was way back home, and that's where we, we hear about all of the things that we, we've talked about before, the, the uh, desolation, right? The, um, all of these uh, different things that have taken place in the temple where he's desecrating the temple. He's building up the statue of Zeus. He's sacrificing the pig in the temple altar. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation with flattery. He will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some will rise, some will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. So humiliated by the, the Romans, Antiochus takes out his wrath on Jerusalem, and the persecution that comes from that reveals, is just as, like it says, reveals who the true believers are. It shows these are the people that were just faking it, and these are the true believers. Before Jesus arrives on the earth for the first time, God's people are refined, they're purified, and persecuted to show who truly belongs to him. Is it possible this is foreshadowing something that we're going to see coming up? 
This is where we, all of a sudden there's a perspective shift that takes place in, in this prophecy. So, so far we've been talking about Antiochus. We've been talking about the things that are, are going to happen in that timeline. Now, all of a sudden there's this shift, and it's not really signaled very clearly, but there's this shift, and now we're talking about the, the end of the end, the things that haven't come about yet. It's kind of like if you look at a picture this way, and you know it looks like the hands are right on top of each other, but then all of a sudden we turn, and the hands are like 10 feet apart, right? We, we can kind of imagine that optical illusion. So this is where we see a perspective shift. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he, will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god of unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the, same, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt and with the Libyans and the Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. So this, this terrible time that we see with Antiochus is happening before Jesus comes to the earth but it foreshadows another conflict that's going to come. Foreshadowing means it, it, it tells us about a conflict that, that is going to be happening. There's great opposition, great conflict, danger for God's people, and then Jesus comes. And then we have more danger, more conflict, more opposition, and then Jesus is going to come again. So what does this mean? In some instances, I can't really tell you. <laughs> but I can tell you what we can get out of this. We should be encouraged because every persecution has a shelf life. Every trial and tribulation that we face has a time limit, including the Antichrist. The quest to take God's place when did that start? That started all the way back in the garden. It started in the garden, but it will end in Jerusalem. And as we go about our life, as we go about our days and the, the different challenges that we face, we are to keep these future promises in mind so that when we suffer, when we face those current circumstances, we can recognize that we still have a God who's on the throne. 
and the specific, precise fulfillment in the, the book of Daniel is there to embolden me about what God has planned in those last days. If God is accurate to the, the day and the things that he is, is prophesying, that he is sharing with Daniel here in this book, then I can trust that he is in control going forward as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you that you're in control. I thank you that I'm not in control, God, <laughs> that, that you are, are the one with your hand on everything and that you are not caught off guard. Heavenly Father, as we go about our days, as we, we have those times where we are, are being persecuted, where we're dealing with hardship, God, help us to look to you. Help us to put our faith and our trust in a God who is sovereign, a God who reigns over all things. Heavenly Father, as we leave this place and as we, we take some time to uh, pray with one another, Lord, I ask that you would, would hear the, the cries of your people this morning. God, if there are, are needs of healing, and I, I know there are needs of healing that, that don't just exist in this place, that exist in your larger body, Lord, I ask that you would, would move mightily in those, those areas. God, if there are needs of provision, that you would, would provide in miraculous ways, in, in ways that allow it to be a testimony of who you are and what you can do. Heavenly Father, we just ask that in this time that, that we would be knit together as a family, knit together as your body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.